This BE podcast is brought to you by Easting and Northing Investments, presenting tourism and health tourism investment opportunities in Portugal and Brazil. Please view our investment projects on our website, www.eastingandnorthing.com. Welcome to Window on the East with me, Ben Aris, the editor in chief of BNE and Telenews. I'm joined today by Sergei Guriev, the chief economist newly appointed at the EBRD. He'll be in Moscow uh, on the 11th of November for the first time in several years to present the EBRD's new transition report. Russia's economy has been flat on its back for the last few years, but next year it's expected to go back into growth, albeit very anemic. Sergey, very good to talk to you. Um, yeah. If we could start um, with the the more sort of you know celebrity stuff, you 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 decided to leave at short notice. I mean, um, uh, how do you feel about going back? I I have uh, work to do. I, I'm going back. I'm presenting transition report. I'm uh, I'm also participating in a couple more conferences. And uh, uh, yeah, what uh, what should I say? Because when you left, I mean, uh, there was this investigation into Yukos um, by the investigation committee and Bashkirin in particular, and you felt that your uh, your liberty was at threat, which was the reason why you left. Is that not right? Uh, on November 11 and 12, I will be in Moscow. That's the first time since um, three and a half years ago. I I'm not uh, I'm not going to uh, re- uh, reject or refuse or decline. Uh, so I'm not going to contradict whatever I said before. But let me not comment on this now. Okay, well uh, then let's dive in with the um, the economic stuff. In so much as Russia, as you know, is is flat on its back, but um, the economic indicators show that it's starting to recover and it will probably almost certainly grow next year, albeit at a very low pace. And this has spurred the government into action. Specifically, Kudrin seems to have taken up the reins and come up with this what we've been calling Plan K. But they're still talking about very anemic kind of growth. I mean, given that we had six to eight percent growth in the uh, in the boom years in the noughties, you know, we're looking at one or two percent going forward. Um, and of course, this is connected to the oil price, but it's not only, is it? I mean, the there's the sanctions as well, but they seem to have played a relatively small role. And the combination of lower oil prices and the lack of structural reform is the key problem. Is that not right? Uh, yes, we believe that uh, Russia will start growing next year. Uh, we forecast 1.2% next year uh, based on oil price around 50. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we are generally in line with government forecast of 0.6 growth in 2017 based on oil price 40. So we are not really divergent from each other. Um, but uh, yes, we agree that growth will be slow. And yes, we think that Russia is facing three problems lack of structural reforms, low oil prices and sanctions. I think it was the Ministry of Economics uh, came out and said that some 70% of the uh, of, of the economy now is controlled by the state. I mean, what specifically, when we say structural reforms are needed, what specifically do you think needs to be done? I mean, obviously, privatization is the first step, but that's going very slowly. But beyond that, you know, how is Russia going to go back to the sort of higher growth trajectory that it needs to not stagnate? Uh, Of course, privatization is a key component of structural reform. And if you actually go back to Mr. Putin's program he put together in 2012 for for the current presidential term and put on paper 
for example, in the presidential decree number 596 uh, signed on May 7, 2012, privatization uh, features very prominently in that uh, decree. The uh, Russian government was actually planning before 2016 to privatize everything but natural monopolies, defense and natural resources. And in that sense, we support that program. We think that uh, Russia would benefit from expansion of private sector and uh, withdrawal of the government from the economy. Deregulation is also part of that reform, and we would support deregulation. Uh, reintegration into the global economy, overcoming, um, overcoming isolation, uh, attracting foreign direct investment, which would bring both technology and best managerial practices, uh, would also be uh, very beneficial for economic growth. So there are many things. Uh, these things have already been put on paper uh, by the current government in particular, and we would support implementation of that pro of that program. But haven't things changed? I mean, you personally were involved in um, drawing up and, and launching the privatization or the restart of the privatization program in 2008, you know, which was, was the key speech of, of Medvedev at the St. Petersburg conference sort of kicked that process off. And we were all very excited then because it looked like there was going to be a sincere effort to, to do it. Um, however, if we look at the privatizations such as they are since then, I mean, we had Alarosa um, very successfully floated some shares, but then the whole sort of shenanigans around Bashneft, uh, which has got bought by Rosneft, and now they're trying to rush through this 19.5% sale of Rosneft before the end of the year. But Rosneft itself is talking about possibly buying the shares itself. You know, it, it seems that the whole program has been slightly hijacked by, you know, the this elite group, what we've been calling Stoligox, or at least the state-owned enterprises. And it's not a genuine privatization, or at least it's not the kind of privatization that was envisaged when the program was restarted in 2008. Uh, if your question is what has changed and why uh, the original plan has not been implemented, uh, I don't know. Uh, the question is not for me. I still support uh, privatization as uh, announced at, at that point and as put on paper in 2012 by Mr. Putin himself. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, your question is not for me. But do you think the privatization as proposed going forward is going to help? Uh, I think, yes, privatization, uh, if it's done in competitive, transparent way, will attract the right kinds of owners, investment, and also will be a major uh, way to credibly signal to businesses inside and outside of Russia that government uh, is pursuing uh, the structural reform program uh, promised by Mr. Putin in 2012. A specific question. Um, there seems to be a contradiction here, specifically these so-called May decrees that Putin put through a couple of years ago. Yeah. And they. 2012. Yes, and they imposed. Um, Twice a couple of years. Indeed, but they're still there, and they still play a prominent role. And specifically, they force on the regions, uh, you know, substantial pay increases and and social support. But while at the macro level, the economy doesn't look too bad, if you dig down into the regions, a lot of regions now are getting into severe trouble because their income is almost exclusively from income tax, whereas at the federal level, of course, they have the oil taxes as well to supplement the budget. But these, you know, the regions are stuck between, on the one hand, trying to carry out the austerity that's uh, linked to, to the cut, cut of expenditure, in the 2017 to 19 budget and on the other hand um 
they have to continue to stick to these May decrees and, and make all these payments. I mean, isn't it at a regional level untenable for a lot of regions? Uh, so the May decrees were based on a specific scenario of structural reform that would result in productivity growth and therefore growth of GDP by about 5% per year. In some scenarios, 6% per year. In that scenario, of course, this increased spending on uh, raising pensions, salaries of teachers and doctors would be feasible. Uh, what's uh, going on now, indeed, is a contradiction, which is uh, part of main decrees have been implemented and part has not. And in that sense, sure, we support full implementation of that program, structural reform, promoting investment and productivity. And that would make possible for the federal budget and the regional budget, a budget to pay for all the promised increases in pensions and uh, salaries of teachers and doctors. And the, uh, the you mentioned pensions. I mean, this is another key part. It seems that, you know, one of the things that Putin did that made him so popular was increase the pensions to, to sort of a livable level, having, you know, the Yeltsin years, people having to get by on $10 a month. Um, However, the pensioners seem to be, you know, thrown out of the boat um, as part of this austerity, trying to, to make the balance, uh, the budget balance, um, and it's also a key reform because you've got the demographic problems on top of that, which means you're going to go from two workers supporting one pension to one worker supporting one pensioner. Uh, how how is Russia going to get out of this fix and this and and how how bad is this demographic problem going to be in terms of ec uh, impacting economic growth going forward? So much depends, of course, on uh, Russia's relationship with the uh, neighbors and uh, the inflow of um, labor migrants from neighboring countries. So it's very hard to predict how that is going to work out. But overall, the long-term solution. Uh, was based on two key elements. One is the pension reform, where people would actually save and government would support and co-finance a long-term savings for their pension, so-called uh, full, fully funded pillar of the pension system. And the second element was the national welfare fund, the long-term sovereign wealth fund that would actually support uh, covering the shortfalls in the pension system before the fully funded pillar uh, would have grown uh, up to a sustainable kind of steady state level. So we have two challenges now, one being uh, government uh, is using uh, the savings in the fully funded pillar uh, year from year, so-called freezing those uh, savings. And uh, the, second, the second problem is government now reclassifies the National Welfare Fund into uh, something that can be used to finance uh, a current budget deficit. And right. in, the, in, the, in the plan for the next three years, government foresees running, uh, uh, exhausting the reserve fund pretty soon and then switching for using national welfare fund for financing budget deficit. So in that sense, uh, both uh, crucial elements of the solution are no longer there and we should be worried about this. We should be concerned about this. And of course, uh, uh, this, this is a major challenge for Russia in the longer run. Now, when you said that uh, pensioners are happy, uh, you're rightly raising an issue to what extent they're still happy. And uh, as you may know, in 2016, pensions were not indexed to inflation, mm. contrary to Russian federal legislation. 
Yeah, I mean, this is the the reserve funds. They're they're actually spending it much harder, much more of it than they intended, and that's a function of the fact that the trillion rubles that they were hoping to raise from privatization this year simply are not going to appear. And given all the politics that surround Russia and its you know showdown with the West and then the Ukraine issue and the Syrian issue, the chances of them getting away all of these things on the privatization list is i don't know it's it's not good is it but that means you think that the reserve fund is going to be exhausted next year and if they're dipping into the national welfare fund as well after that then you know russia can buy itself what another three years of of supplementing its own deficit from its own resources but what happens when when the national welfare fund runs out as well doesn't that give them three years to make these reforms to put russia back on a sort of growth trajectory or else the country will just slip into Latin American style stagnation uh, long term. So you, you mentioned uh, quite a few things in one question. So first and foremost, I will not comment on Ukraine and Syria. It's not part of my job. Right. Second, in the scenario where Russia remains isolated and cut from uh, global financial markets, indeed, Russia can only rely on uh, using reserve fund and the national welfare fund. Now, the current budget already uh, realizes this, this challenge. And so if you look at the uh, project projected budget for 2017, 18, and 19, you see that the uh, Ministry of Finance proposes major cuts in real terms. So they're talking about keeping nominal spending in rubles constant over the three years, which means if inflation is 4% per year, uh, cutting expenses 4% per year every year. So it's a, it's a, it's a major realization that uh, the question that you're asking uh, is actually very salient. And uh, they're prepared to cut uh, pensions, uh, teacher salaries, um, uh, subsidies, uh, military spending. If you look at the numbers, they are staying more or less constant in some cases. In some cases, actually go down substantially because they uh, realize that your question is out there. They need to be able to respond to it in two or three years' time. Now, there are some pessimistic uh, assumptions in the budget, like the budget is based on $40 per barrel. Our current projection is more is more like 50 Well, Russian oil probably would be 45 47 uh, But uh, indeed, they may be right. They may know something that we don't know. Then the other, uh, or the markets don't know. The other uh, thing is where they are a bit more optimistic than us. They think that in 2019, growth rate will go up to 2%. This is not what, for example, IMF thinks. IMF thinks 1.5%. Um, and uh, another, another issue which is reasonably optimistic in their projections is that they will be able to borrow substantially in the domestic market. Uh, we think that that may be problematic because if they actually borrow 1 trillion rubles per year, net, every year, in the next three years, that will result in what economists call crowding out. And so that will result in higher real interest rates, which in turn will undermine growth further. And uh, in that sense, it is actually a problematic way going forward, simply because that will be self-defeating, undermining growth rate even further, and therefore creating even a bigger budget deficit. I mean, that's an interesting point. We've been looking at the bond market, which has been doing very well, because we've got this, you know, effective zero interest rates everywhere else. And yet the the, the sovereigns are, are going out at whatever it is, 4% and corporates up to, to 15 And as you say, the, the, the 
well, I've seen the projections for borrowing. There was three hundred billion. Uh, sorry, yeah, three hundred billion rubles domestic got increased to five hundred, and it's going up to a thousand to a trillion rubles next year. But also the euro bonds, the sovereign, we had three billion dollars exactly. issued and seven billion back to the seven billion that we you know traditionally issue every year again from next year. Exactly. Yeah, that that. You know the combination of of and of course the, the the point of the sovereign issue this year was to set a benchmark for the corporates and the corporates have come out at least they've started to there's been a string of bonds since then but funding the the deficit with a combination of external and domestic borrowing that there's not enough um the, the markets aren't deep enough to to raise enough money to actually fund. i fully agree that's exactly what i was trying to say yes right so uh, markets are not deep. We've never tried to borrow one trillion in uh, domestic market, and they are suggesting uh, one trillion net every year. So in, uh, you repay the old trillion, and then you borrow once again. And in that sense, and in that sense, uh, the markets are not deep. So that will result in very high interest rates in real terms, which so, of course will 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 have a negative impact on real time. But there's still some wiggle room in so much as the Russia is still offering relatively high rates. And as far as the markets are concerned, they've, de they've decided to ignore the politics simply because large pension funds in the West, they need to buy something that pays. And increasingly, there's less and less out there other than the Russia stuff. Yeah, yeah, sure. Externally, I agree. But that may also change, by the way, if uh, United States raise their interest rate. But um, I'm talking about issues domestically. As you rightly said, domestic markets are not deep enough. And they're thinking about dramatic increase in domestic, in domestic borrowing. And it is not clear whether uh, external investors will be happy to invest in uh, ruble bonds. So what I'm taking out of this, I mean, there's a number of short-term fixes. I mean, they can go and dip into the two reserve funds, the National Welfare and the Reserve Fund. Yes. And at the same time, they can actually borrow quite a lot, and that will work for a while and be, you know, affordable before you start getting this interest rate problem. But it does seem to me that they're intending to leave the economy, the shape of the economy, pretty much as it is. There's going to be a bit of privatization, and there's going to be some cuts, and there's going to be some borrowing. Um, but all said and done, it, it allows them to continue as they are. But that will only work for a couple of years, say three years. And it, do you see any intention there that with this time that they can buy themselves, that they're going to attack, you know, the deeper structural problems? Because um, that's really the only way out of this paper bag, isn't it? I, mean, uh, I would I would agree with you. Yes. Uh, but uh, whether uh, the Russian government will follow your advice or not, this is the question for me. Well, I keep offering uh, it. You are, I think I think I think one one important uh, element you didn't you didn't list now is that they can also cut pensions further in real terms, which they are already are doing. So. But if they do too much of that and they cut teacher salaries, I mean, then Putin undoes all of the prosperity that he's brought, which is we assume the basis of his popularity, uh, and then you start. You know, opening yourself up to to you know real political risk in the form of protests, coloured revolutions, what have you. I mean, he he can't afford to. Do I, I, I I I I this is not my job. I cannot comment on political. Risk. But yeah. I agree with you. I agree with you that uh, if you cut pensions, pensioners are less happy. You mentioned um, the region, and I remember listening to a talk you and and uh, your predecessor Eric Bergloff gave at the EBRD meeting. I think it was in Minsk. Um, where I think Eric pointed out that Russia remains an investment node for the whole region. And the economic problems that Russia's having, 
is spilling over into the whole CIS and, and even further afield. I mean, you, you take what's going on in Central Asia, they're looking at the, I think it's the slowest growth in 20 years. And of course, Ukraine is affected uh, indirectly by the state of the Russian economy, and of course, directly by, by the specifics of the, um, the political fight they're having. But isn't the Russian problem actually a, a regional problem? I mean, to what extent are the other countries dependent on Russia's health? Yes, uh, we actually conduct this analysis and we do find that uh, uh, all Russia's neighbors are uh, deeply affected by Russian recession. And that is in terms of investment, trade, remittances, uh, exports and imports, all, all kinds of issues. And in particular, um, Belarus actually went into recession uh, last year and uh, this recession continues this year. That's the first recession in 20 years. Uh, we saw major devaluations in neighboring countries. We also see returning uh, guest workers, returning labor migrants who are now looking for jobs in neighboring countries. So these are pretty big issues. And of course, Russian recession is a problem for the whole region. And uh, we actually do have calculations which has, suggest that every percentage point of Russian GDP uh, uh, decline uh, results in half or third or quarter percentage points of GDP decline in neighboring countries, depending on the country. So yes, that's, that's exactly the way to put it. So that's a horrible conundrum for all of these other leaders. I mean, you, you take Nazarbayev and, and Lukashenko in particular as members of the EU, but you can see them also um, starting conversations with, uh, I don't know, Lukashenko in particular, their relationships with the European Union seems to be war warming and that they're looking for ways to, to fix their economy, build trade, um, to, to get them off this Russia addiction, or at least to break the dependence they have on, on Russia's uh, economy. But going forward, I mean, is, is that a realistic? I mean, is it actually happening? Or is there any prospect of, of diversifying away? And, um, and Belarus. Yeah, uh, Belarus. So and the, uh, uh, we, uh, we engage in a uh, uh, discussion of various uh, possible projects with Belarus. And uh, uh, it seems like uh, this, uh, this time around, it's, uh, it, we are discussing tangible projects. And so does IMF. And uh, and that uh, that may be uh, hinting that you're right. Because I, I was just uh -huh. looking at Belarus and, and they've launched this um, state program, in, which effectively is going to end the whole special subsidy re regime for, exactly. for state. Exactly. Exactly. They they also they also reformed pension system. They also uh, committed to raising uh, uh, to raising utility communal utility tariffs. So yes, they are removing subsidies simply because uh, they they have to. Um, about Ukraine, um, the trade has collapsed, but they also have um, trade with the European Union, as far as the numbers I've seen, has been falling uh, over this year. I mean, you know, they, they've, they've cut themselves off from Russia, but then at the same time, the European Union hasn't really come to, you know, it hasn't become a market to replace it. I mean, aren't they stuck between a rock and a hard place, I mean, economically? No, uh, of course, of course, it's very hard to develop in such a, a, a dramatic uh, political environment. But uh, we see that Ukraine started to grow. We see inflation's coming down. We see major efforts to clean up the banking system. Uh, we see a reform of uh, NAFTA gas and uh, uh, gas prices, which is something that people didn't expect to happen. So we see some uh, uh, bold moves forward. 
Uh, I think uh, we should expect uh, more work on um, anti-corruption agenda, judiciary reform. This is not what EBRD, EBRD's uh, activity is focused on, but we are looking forward in promoting privatization agenda in Ukraine, which is, of course, very much needed. And uh, we have heard commitments from Ukrainian governments to make progress on this. So honestly, I, I think that Ukraine has delivered more than many people have expected. That doesn't mean that success is there. I think much more is to be done. But currently, uh, we remain cautious optimists. IMF remains cautious optimists. Well, my view on that is, you know, they, they haven't done any reforms in 20 years. And it took Russia 10 years, if, you know, the, the horrible 90s, to get most of what it's got on the plate. And surely Ukraine is going through the same process to expect to turn around in a year or two is, is a bit, uh, you know, I don't know, naive. No, but there is also, I think, I think the fact that there is a, a free trade agreement with the uh, EU, an overall commitment from uh, the majority of the political class to the uh, uh, European trajectory, I think uh, there are some reasons to believe that Ukraine is actually committed to reform path. We may be mistaken. That's not, not the first time uh, countries announcing uh, uh, commitment to market economy and democracy has uh, uh, reversed its cause. But uh, I, think, I think there are many reasons to believe that uh, Ukraine is doing okay. Great. On an upbeat note, then, um, thank you very much, Sergei.